The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. What a rally to start the week. Then came the fade. Oil's moving higher for all the wrong reasons. The VIX starting to pop above 30 and rising. And today we have giveaways and saying F you to FUD. All this and much more on episode number 785 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Discipline Investor Podcast. Hey, I'm Andrew Horowitz. I am the host of the Discipline Investor Podcast, as well as the co-host, as you know, of DH Unplugged. That's on Tuesday nights. Myself and John C. Dvorak get together, and we talk about, I would say, and I describe it best, I think, as the lighter side of business. We call over a whole host of things. It's educational, it's informational, it's timely. And what we talk about are some things that you usually don't find, especially these days with the crap business channel and information and mainstream media, which we're going to talk a little bit about today because I have a bone to pick with CNBC. But anyway, we talk about a lot of things that are outside the scope uh, and even take some of the news that is reported and try to, I don't want to say totally rip it apart, but understand really what it says. So going behind the scenes and understanding what it means when certain things happen, whether it's economically, whether it is politically to a degree, whether it is um, market-oriented. That is the core, financial and market-oriented. So make sure to listen, or whether it's live or tune in on one of your favorite podcast apps, DH Unplugged. Make sure to subscribe to that. Here we are. It is... Uh, we're past the Jewish holidays. You know, the old adage of sell Rosh Hashanah and buy Yom Kippur. Uh, not really. Not such a great adage right now. It would have been, I think, sell just ahead of Rosh Hashanah and buy just ahead of Yom Kippur and then get back out. The fact is that we saw some incredible moves over the last week involved in equities around the world predicated on the fact that, well, maybe the Fed is going to soften up, pivot, do a U-turn, do something after what we saw happened in, in the UK. And if you haven't been watching what's going on there, there has been some substantial U-turns that have gone on after the new prime minister that came in flubbed it, screwed it, absolutely did a terrible job at trying to communicate and implement some, I would say, economically oriented stimulus packages that really focused on the wealthy and screwed the poor. Probably not the best way to come into things right now when we are in such a uh, concerning situation related to the energy, inflation, cost factors, jobs markets, everything concerning Europe and that European region. So that's really was stupid, boneheaded. And the markets taught them a lesson, taught her a lesson. 
said, you know what? You can't do this. If you're going to do something like this with an unfunded tax cut and you're going to start issuing massive amounts of bonds debasing our currency, you know what? We're going to throw things just uh, out. We're not a part of this. And the markets went berserk, sold the bonds, rates skyrocketed, sold the currency, dropped the pound dramatically until they, within, I don't know, two or three days, had to do a major U-turn and retract, recant, reverse all the things that they were trying to do, saying, you know what, maybe maybe it was a, a, not a well-thought-out, <laughs> maybe we didn't do our homework enough, which they didn't, because there was no plan. It was just this idea that we could do this, what the hell, we're going to do it. And I, I have to say that there's some of that seemingly going around. It's a new, new epidemic of we have the power and we will use it regardless of how abusive it is, regardless of how destructive it is. And we're seeing that everywhere, including here in the U.S. Just last week, President Biden decided, you know what, I'm going to pardon, I don't know, 6,500, 6,700 people that have federal, uh, are, 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 has some kind of federal record, whether incarcerated now or they have some kind of historical um, case against them related to possession of marijuana, pot, herb, weed, MJ, 420, whatever you want to call it. And what happened is that that's fine. It's within his rights to do so. The next thing, the idea was starting to float around at the end of last week that not only was that going to happen, but he did state that he would like the Health and Human Services and some other departments to review the classification along the level of, of drug, of what level of narcotic, if you will, that marijuana is. And should it be there, in, in fact, leading to the potential clearing for federal decriminalization? And if that's the case, there's a whole host of things that follow with that in the financial area. Um, it went, paved the way for payments um, in the area of um, lack of state mandates requiring voting of whether or not legality is based on recreational or medical use. Whole host of things. And what happened? Well, what do you think happened? The pot stocks, which have been just sinking, thinking that nothing was ever going to get done here, went on a major wild ride higher on Thursday. You look at symbol MJ. You look at symbol MSOS, and you say, wow, that was pretty impressive. We're talking about 30%, 40% moves on some of the names in the sector related to pot. Now, that would also allow for companies to um, freely, I suppose, with proper licensure, et cetera, but freely uh, grow, distribute, and sell here in the U.S. rather than having to go outside to find their particular product. Interesting. Now, will that pass? I don't know. But what they're trying to do and why I'm talking about the power issue here is that there is some talk about utilizing executive order to do so. This idea, which is fine, it was used by Trump. It was used by Obama. It was used by um, every president and more and more so because it seems that it's just a tool that can usurp or get away from the long and arduous task 
of having to deal with Congress. Who the hell? Who wants to deal with Congress? I mean, they're a difficult bunch that can't agree on anything, only out for their own benefits, it seems, by bringing back earmarks and bringing back, um, you know, all sorts of real, anyway, can't even make a decision on passing a bill that there should be oversight on stock trading and insider trading, might I say, is really the point there. So who are they working for? Well, they're working for themselves. So presidents now are taking it upon themselves. I don't condone this. I don't condemn it. I'm just telling you how it is. Fact is that right now it looks like that is going to be the path that Biden is going to look to take if, in fact, they are trying to decriminalize this. And that is why the pot stocks moved up so dramatically. But we have a lot of this going on around the world in different ways, for good and for bad. And it's a very strange circumstance that is really enveloping what's happening. And by doing so with the central banks taking the lead at, hey, you know what? We're in charge. We'll make this all right. We'll take care of it. We'll change it. We'll reduce it. We'll increase it. All of this is a huge burden on the back of markets because it really is a very heavy load to lift when it comes to trying to discern where we are going to be in a number of months from now. The problem that we have is that there is a significant amount of pushing and pulling going on from a 9,000-pound gorilla around the world in all sorts of places. And that's why we saw when there was a better-than-expected employment number. Did you see that last week? We saw that on Friday. I mean, look, the employment situation is actually getting better. We went from a 3.7% to a 3.5%. I mean, can you believe that? I mean, with all of the rate hikes, with all the worries about the future that's being portrayed on, on mainstream media, the question is how in the hell do we have a better than expected, a much better than expected, not just a little bit, a much better than expected employment or unemployment number? Now, when you look at some of the other numbers, they came in pretty much on par. The wage increases were pretty much on par and actually were better than expected in a good way where we didn't see as much wage hike pressure going on. Then we have the other situations where we saw only 263,000, a little bit better, a little bit hotter, but still a lot lower than it has been, but it's not negative. Amazing. Not a lot of surprises, but when you see a 3.7 to a 3.5, that is the headline number. That is the number that everybody's going to look at and saying, you know what? The U.S. is still hot when it comes to employment. That does not do anything to alter the inflation discussion, and that took markets down. Markets looked at this as a bad thing. Because why? Because good news right now is bad news, and bad news maybe good news, maybe, maybe depending on how bad it is. But that's how it is right now. Because what has happened is that we have been effectively brainwashed by the quote-unquote anchoring of expectations by the Fed. And right now when we look at the most recent economic situation, the environment that we have out there, as well as some very specific company releases. I think that we have to acknowledge the fact that there are some strange items that are going on right now that I, I, we have to consider. Some things that are really weird. It's not very normal out there. It's not 
the same this time. Now, maybe when we look out over a period of time, maybe six to 12 months, we say, yeah, okay, well, that was relatively normal when we look at it in totality. But generally speaking, you know, you hear this, oh, this time is different. Oh, BS, this time is different. It's never different. It's a little bit changed, nuanced, but it's not different. But yes, I think it is. I mean, for example, the idea that we have right now that traditional economic indicators are available to be used effectively after a global, uh, an entire global shutdown, I mean, just shutting it all down, is preposterous. It's nuts. I mean, think about that for a second. The idea that we're utilizing traditional, tried and true economic indicators in a situation that really has never happened before is ridiculous. Would you do that? Would you use the same tool on an item that's never been seen before? You may try to tr fit the tool. Probably is not going to work very good. You keep on doing it, something's going to break because it's not going to work right. And unfortunately, the old codgers running the Fed don't seem to have any other options available. Nor do they even want to acknowledge that they would create something in this kind of environment. You know, for a long time, they talked about allowing for inflation to run above the 2% range. This is something that was about four years ago when I had lunch and Ben Bernanke was a speaker. And I had the opportunity to listen in on that. And then afterwards, had a private session with him. And I said, listen, what's going on with this 2% and this alternative inflation and where we're going to allow for inflation averaging? Is this something? He says, yes. You know what? The fact is, this is a way for the Fed to keep rates um, or the, 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 the obvious look of rates at a level where they can continue to allow for a significant amount of increase in um, monetary policy, expansion of monetary policy, without worrying about the fact that we have inflation. And if that's the case, can't we then say, and I'm, I'm sharing this now, the other side is true as well. In other words... If inflation averaging was done to promote the idea that, um, you know, obviously uh, we're in a different situation now, what is it that is bothering them so badly right now that they can't slow their roll a little bit in order to see how things play out for a longer period of time? I mean, they went from this absolute hysteria about keeping inflation above 2% to absolute hysteria on the other side, I don't know. It's just the whole thing is absurd to me. So these old codgers, I'm going to continue to call them old codgers. They may not be a lot older than I am, but I got to tell you, their ideas are really ancient. Uh, we're talking, these are, to a point I'll call them knuckle draggers. I mean, they are really being stupid. The idea that they need to anchor and, 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 he who protests too much. Something else is going on here. And I do agree with a lot of colleagues who I've talked to lately about this idea that is this, this big experiment that's going on. And why not? Because we have the opportunity to do so. We have the opportunity to see how we can try to finesse. and Well, not even finesse. Finesse is not the right word. But to um, powerhouse the economy in any direction we want 
by utilizing these tools and really see how it's going to work. Well, listen, we helped everybody so dramatically. They owe us this opportunity, right? No. What you did was reckless then, and it's reckless now. I'm not going to get into this whole discussion, but unfortunately, this better-than-expected unemployment rate that we just talked about is going to be problematic for those people who are betting on a change in their plan, this, this pivot that it keeps on being talked about. This pivot that will happen anytime soon is not really going to happen. At least that's what they're talking about. And again, they want us to believe that they're serious because they've been so dovish for so long. They have to keep on protesting constantly and telling us over and over and over and over and over, hey, we're going to raise rates. Now we have something on the other side of reality here is the the economy globally is showing some problems. Not as rosy of an employment picture really exists outside of here for the most part. And what we're seeing underlying the information, underlying these statisticals, which was the statistical anomalies, which it seems to be, are things from companies like FedEx that came out with an internal memo that said their ground division expects lower volumes during the holiday season. Now, that's probably going to be things like durable goods, the, the heavier items, right? The ground, things that transport on ground, but also deliveries from places like Amazon and um, other online retailers that are not the FedEx uh, overnight, right? The, the envelopes. So ground, that covers a lot of area. So which is it? Candy or coal? In the stockings this holiday season, which is it? Are we seeing that there is just a reversion, that there was so much of a backlog that got filled because there was so much ordering that had to go on in order to fill that backlog that here we are with advanced micro devices, AMD, slamming on the brakes in the semiconductor industry and saying, you know what, PC demand continues to unravel. And why is that? I think we look at the Wayfair phenomena that happened during the pandemic and realize something very important. What we realize is that there's just so many PCs or desks or couches or barbecues or outdoor patio furniture that people are going to buy in their lifetimes. And everybody bought all of that during the two-year period or one-and-a-half-year period between 2020 and 2021 from that and part of maybe 2022. And then when they they screwed the pooch out of the out of the supply chains, and when things went mighty sideways due to the fact that places were closed, but people were still ordering because all this free money was flowing, it caused a problem. And problems were there wasn't enough materials to build the parts and the supply chains weren't shipping and the shipments weren't going there. And what happened was we had further orders because people were freaking out. And with that, people were buying even more, driving prices even higher, causing problems for demand again and the availability. Then we had the situation where it cost more and employees were demanding more money. That demand for more money, what did it do? Well, you had to pay up. Then the paying up caused the price to go up. Prices going up caused more Wage inflation. And then all of a sudden, everybody said, you know, I'm full. <laughs> they said, you know, I'm, I'm done. And with that, what happened was that here we are in a situation where we're going to see a glut 
forming. And it's very clear that the Fed is not paying attention to it, or they don't care, or maybe it doesn't matter to them. What you're going to see is a significant price decline, a deflationary spiral by them keeping up their high inter higher interest rate rhetoric, the rate increase rhetoric, along with the fact that we're seeing things from various companies that are causing problems. Here's a lot to think about. Because when you look at other areas on the demand side and, and you question what's going on in China with their policies that may or may not change, which is smacking demand right in the face for companies like Nike and Starbucks. Did you see the recent report from Starbucks, uh, from Nike, when they looked at, um, and I talked about this with Frank Curzio. I was on his podcast this week. You can catch that on YouTube or go over to the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 you know, whatever app you use and grab uh, Wall Street Unplugged, which is a podcast that I was on this week with Frank Curzio. And we talked about how Nike was up 23% on their inventories last quarter and another 40%, 40% increase in inventories. And what do you think that does with the opportunity to then sell at a lower cost, bringing down prices? That is the very nature of what deflation is, is lower costs to the consumer, right? Deflation, lower costs, not higher costs, not higher prices, lower prices. Nike is going to have to get rid of their excess inventory. But yet, there's been no dent in the unemployment. Isn't that kind of strange? I mean, what gives? So there's, it is different. What's happening now is a different phenomena, circumstance than we've seen in the past. And that's making it difficult to navigate some of the areas of the market. Now, by the way, I'm going to talk to you about, um, I'm going to give you, I'm going to name names. I have about a dozen stocks that have been really holding up well in one particular sector. I'm going to give you the actual names that we are investing in right now. now. Those are due to change, by the way, at any given time, at any given moment. And there's a disclaimers, of course, don't invest in them because I'm mentioning them. But I want to share with you what's going on just from the aspect of, uh, the relative nature of performance from what we're seeing in markets and how incredibly they've done in the recent end. And I'm going to have a bunch of like the last five or six days uh, have been unbelievable for this particular sector. This one sector and the names underneath it have really been doing extremely well. We're going to get to that and a giveaway too. Um, but I just want to make sure you know that. And I have a great listener question. So, um, but I want to talk, after we talk about all this change in what's going on right now and give you a solid basis for what I'm thinking and why I'm thinking you need to open your eyes to a different way and a different process, I want to, though, talk about something that's been bothering me. It's, it's, it's been growing on me. It's, it's, like a, it's like a bad fungus that just keeps on growing. And... I have found that the more I have been watching CNBC, the less I'm finding it to have any redeeming value as an investor. I don't watch it that much, but what I do, I wake up in the morning and I you know, throw it on, look at the headlines, back and forth to Bloomberg, go on Reuters, a variety of other places to get my information. But in the background in the morning as I'm, getting dressed, eating, getting ready. I put on CNBC. 
and CNBC has turned into the Fed channel. <laughs> I don't know if they are the whisperers, they're trying to be like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal have been over the years, or whether they are uh, trying to some, I don't know what they're doing, but they turn every conversation into a discussion about the Fed. Have you noticed that? How creepy is that? There's a few people that are worse than others when it comes to this, and especially in the morning. I mean, when they, crazy, they turn everything into this, well, what would the Fed do with that information? I mean, way out, like when a, a biotech company comes on with a new drug that's going to cure uh, hemorrhagic fever or something, and somehow the blowhard Joe Kernan turns it into a discussion about, well, what would the Fed do about that? And how would a rate increase? And what do you think rate increases will do to hemorrhagic fever? I mean, I'm exaggerating, but really, they hijack the conversation and then ask a stupid question. So dumb. Now, with all due respect to CNBC, Joe Kernan has been doing this for a long time. He's blocked me on CNBC, on Twitter, by the way. Early on, when I asked him a few basic questions, the guy has zero ability to be authentic. But during the last political regime, the Trump years, he was all about Trump, constantly about politics and trying his best to uh, turn every conversation into a political conversation, just like he's doing now. But moreover than just your Kernan and the gang, I like a few of them. Andrew, Andrew Ross Sarkin, I like uh, him. Becky Be Becky in the morning, she's uh, an intermediator, intermediary um, in the evening, some of the people. But it's the same thing over and over again. You have to wonder why they don't bring in anybody new to be core analysts because the same conversation, the same drivel, the same talking their books is incessant. It's crazy. And we have Jim Cramer. Did you see this week that <laughs> this was this is really funny actually? What happened was that somebody, uh, ETF firm, applied uh, for an application for an ETF, which is going to be the inverse Kramer ETF. This is something that, if you follow along the Twitterdom, there is a constant discussion about whatever Kramer does, do the opposite. So now somebody comes along and says, you know, hey, that's a good idea. How about we create an ETF with a inverse Kramer? And there's a whole bunch of stuff that pissed Kramer off pretty good from some of the reaction. I don't know how they're going to be successful. I don't know how they're going to actually do it. What are they going to do? They're going to go on and listen to his show and then start every night buying or selling whatever he says the opposite of? Is it going to be all or just some? I mean, it's going to be, it's, it's novelty at best. But that's what happens when the, 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 the drama of the situation is more important than the, the data, the raw data. And that's what they've done. And you may say, well, it's hard to watch Bloomberg because it's, it's kind of dry. I mean, it's just not easy to watch Bloomberg. If you're really not focused, they don't have anything else besides just the core data. And it just, it's right in your face and you have to concentrate. There's a lot of stuff on the screen, things going by back and forth, up and down, side to side, in and out. Yeah, well, it's a much better place to look. Reuters, the app itself, excellent. CNBC, uh, 
I'll keep it on here and there just to see what's going on. And like I've done for many years, background just for the data, keep the volume off. And I, and I suggest that you consider that as well it, because it gets very frustrating as an investor. And you don't want that to happen where you're going to get into a, a low confidence circumstance. Again, we're going to talk about that. Um, I want to touch on the price of oil for a second. Uh, we saw that there was a big surprise this week with regard to a decision that was made by OPEC+. Plus. There was some conversation coming into this week that OPEC+, Plus, <laughs> you have to say that because it's the OPEC and other places, right, that add into their, their total contingent. So there was a conversation about the potential for a cut because OPEC Plus was concerned that oil prices were coming down, demand was coming down, and they had a desire to preeminently reduce down overall supply in an effort to hold prices so that there wouldn't be a plunge once demand diminishes significantly. Okay. Okay. However, we haven't seen demand really diminish in any uh, important way yet. But OPEC is decided not only to cut 1 million, which was the original thought, 1 million barrels per day, not 1.5 million, which was the thought a couple of days later, but they went a whopping 2 million barrels per day, much more than was expected. That drove the price of oil up. That helped to revive from just a little bit of a sag, nothing major, the oil industry. And that is something that I wanted to talk about. And uh, it, it's part of this, part of the process that I have talked to you about for so long. In fact, uh, my first book, The Disciplined Investor, Essential Strategies for Success, I talked about this in a very early chapter. I talked about the idea of quantitative analysis. I talked about how when you set up a process that you are confident in and that has historical ability to be tested and you create this as a way to backstop the emotional aspect of worrying about your money. So in other words, you know, there's a lot of self-doubt that comes into the process when you're investing as an investor, whether it's short-term or long-term. You have this idea that, wow, wait a minute, hmm, you know, things aren't looking so good. Maybe I was wrong. Now, I'm not talking about FUD, right? That goes along with the idea that is not based in anything concrete, not based in good long-term research. That is that, that is no basis, not even based in anything, right? The, the idea of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, F-U-D, was, in my opinion, a great marketing scheme by the Bitcoin boys, the bras, man, the dudes. And they did this so that they could distract you, keeping you looking this direction, but actually wanting to look over here, not look there, look over there. It was this way of them creating this idea where they could artificially inseminate, if you will, this, this, this confidence based on, eh, I think, nothing. So you know what I have to say? F you to F U D. F you to FUD. It's just silliness. Trying to make you feel better about something that you shouldn't be. Self-doubt is totally different. We're not talking about this FUD. This fear, uncertainty, and doubt. I mean, that that's a whole different thing that is really just out there. I'm talking about self-doubt where we can stop 
the self-doubt by creating a process. How to get rid of it when we talk about investing, right? To to really instill some confidence. Now, there are going to be times that you lose confidence when things are just not working out. When you have just a uh, just a lousy situation that's going on, out of the control. But when you can actually create a process that allows for you to know when to pull or pull the trigger or to push and get out, I think that's important. And again, I outlined this in the first chapters of my book. Um, you know, I mentioned that twice now. I'm thinking, I have an idea. We haven't done this in a while. And, uh, okay, here we go. I got to flush, flush this. This is on the, on the fly. We're going to do this. Okay. Uh, let's do a giveaway. I think it's time with Marcus being as difficult as they've been. Let's do a giveaway. Just thought of this. Okay. So how we do this. Um, how about, all right. How about we do, I don't know, 10 books to random people who write me. Let's just do a total. I'm not, this is not well thought out. Uh, <laughs> Write me, uh, send me your name, send me your address, and we'll send you a copy of your book. Ten random people that send that in. You can go over to thedisciplinedinvestor.com. Uh, the best way, I guess, to do this is click on the Ask Andrew button. When you click on the Ask Andrew button, that will be, uh, you know, give you the opportunity to write a few things. Put your name, put your mailing address, and we'll do this over the next week. By next week, if you get your Ask Andrew email into me, ten people randomly I'll pick and I'll send you a copy of my book, The Soft Cover, with actual pages. Audiobooks are still available on Audible, by the way. But I'll send you this um, so you can have uh, a good idea, of a better idea of what I'm talking about when it talks about screening and filtering, quantitative processing, fundamentals, understanding how to create that confidence that I'm talking about right now by creating a process that allows you to go back and recreate and understand if something goes wrong, what's going wrong, how to adjust, et cetera. And basically, it's the whole chapter on quantitative analysis. And, and the, the, some of the things about filtering and scoring that we use from the MSN money back in the day are different, but the concepts are all exactly the same. It can be applied to any kind of screening program that's out there on any site, on any uh, platform. So... Just to restate this point, make sure we're clear on this. One week from now, so today's, uh, we're talking about Sunday, right? It's the 9th. So we're talking about through Sunday the 16th. And you, uh, right, the 16th, that would be the 16th, yep. Uh, and you um, go over to thedisciplineinvestor.com, click on the Ask Andrew, put in your name and your address. You don't put your address, I'm not gonna, we're going to automatically disqualify you. So put your address in there so that when we pick at random, the 10 will send it right out to you. Okay? I like it. You like it? USA only. Oh, I got, that's probably important too, right? Hmm. US, U.S. citizens only. I'm not sending this international. All right. Back, back to the concept of process. Quantitative analysis. Again, the idea that we're setting parameters and allowing the process to do its thing. One of my one of my earliest memories of creating a process and understanding how it worked from the aspect of choosing stocks through a defined 
uh, set of scoring, filtering, um, uh, quantitative valuation metrics, whether it's technical analysis, whether it's fundamental analysis. In other words, whether we're looking at things like earnings or we're looking at things like moving averages, you know, are we above or below or, or uh, uh, 200 day moving average? Or are we uh, in the top 10 of our peer group for earnings growth over the last five years? Or whatever, whatever you want to choose as a particular parameter to create this filter. Was a book by um, Jim O'Shaughnessy. You probably know him. Uh, it was called What Works on Wall Street. And it was a fascinating dissection of analysis that was done utilizing all sorts of computer generated historical reference points showing comparative performance of a particular value uh, against maybe a, an in index or a, a sector. So, for example, things like the lowest or the highest, or pick whatever you want, uh, price to sales ratio stocks over the last 30 years uh, rebalanced every year. Uh, how did that perform against a, an index of its peers? And peers being, for example, the S&P 500. So you take the S&P 500 and you say, okay, well, or the Russell 1000, Russell 3000, whatever you want to take. And you want to say, okay, well, the highest price to sales ratio each year we buy them. Uh, at the end of the year, we'd run it again. We buy them again, et cetera. Dogs of the Dow, right? The lowest, um, the, the highest yielding, 10 highest yielding of the Dow Jones, probably usually uh, in, the, in the old days when they were more Dow Jones industrials and materials and old line, non-technology, dividend-paying stocks. This was a thing where you would actually look for the lowest yielding, I mean, excuse me, the highest yielding, which would mean the price came down dramatically. It was really the dogs of the Dow. And he used yield to identify which ones were the lowest. Again, this beat the index over a number of years. So those concepts, if you can combine these various factors, as they're called, or the, the qualities, and you put that in and you say, well, here's one that I believe historically has done a lot better. We're going to stack that with this next one. And all these criterias need to be true in order to create this appropriate filter. And as such, what are the, what over the last, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever, 100 years, whatever, whatever time period you want to use, what are the factors that I can include that will provide for me the, the best results on a regular basis, and I can have faith and trust this. Listen, there are managers that choose stocks once a year, and they just let them sit under all circumstances. And they do it year after year. Now, I don't know exactly what they're getting paid to do, but they're getting paid, I guess, for their formula. And that formula, historically, has done very well, let's say. And they trust it. Now, that's the point I'm making here, though. The whole discussion here is about having the confidence in the creation of what you're doing, the process of what you're doing, in order to give you the ability to actually implement. How many times do you look to things and say, oh, I knew that was the case. I looked at this. I should have done it, but it just, oh, it didn't seem right. If you had something that twisted your arm, made you do a certain exercise, if you will. Maybe it's the difference between having a personal trainer and not. You know, without the personal trainer, I'll do 25 sit-ups. With the personal trainer, I'll do 30 sit-ups in proper form. Maybe sometimes we get, this self-doubt gets the best of us. 
and we need a trainer. What you could do is set up some kind of mechanism. And usually it begins with writing things down. And I know that sounds so corny and that sounds so archaic in a day where a lot of people don't even pick up a pen ever (laughs) and forget a pencil, right? But writing things down, committing them to paper, either physically or virtually. Maybe put in a note in your phone. Maybe you have a special section in some program, maybe just a Microsoft Word that is your absolutes. And develop some kind of a plan for yourself that you could stick to with goals and without clauses, with out, not without, with out clauses, an out clause saying that, you know, if this doesn't work, this is what will be the downside potential and I'll refigure. Because every one of these needs to be readjusted depending on various circumstances. We know that growth, bam, bam, go, go, momo growth has worked well before 2022 for decades. Last, uh, at least 10 years, we'll call it. Well, if you stuck to that and you said, well, you know what? Nothing changes. No matter what happens, nothing changes in my process. Well, that didn't work very well for you, did it? And when we have a situation where we want to change along with the changing backdrop, when you have it written down, you can go to that recipe, if you will. Think of it like a recipe. Go to that recipe and pull it out and say, okay, what do I do in this circumstance? Be like making making a certain pie in different altitudes. It'd be like um, a golfer that uses his eight iron for 150 yards all the time, but now he's in Colorado. You don't want to use that eight iron anymore. Maybe you want to use a pitching wedge for the same 150 yards because the balls go a lot longer at higher altitudes. Point I'm making, though, is, and this is the whole crux of the matter, the self-doubt can be maybe not eliminated, but can be suppressed. If, in fact, you have some kind of a plan, some kind of a way of of creating a process in order to understand where you're going to invest. Now, I want to share with you something. That's where I was coming to with this, right? The whole point is one of the things in our process, in particular, picking individual stocks for our aggressive um, um, TDI managed growth strategy, is that we utilize a core principle of values that we utilize to uncover stocks with certain criteria. And whether or not I like the name or not, if that stock makes the criteria, that's going to be invested in. Now, there's some other things behind that. I'm simplifying this whole point. But what was really fascinating to me was two quarters ago, something happened that I hadn't seen in a long time. And I was like, ah, mm, not sure. But I said, We have to play along. So when we rebalanced the portfolio, a lot of names came in that I was very worried about. I said, I don't know how this is going to work out. I mean, look at what's going on. This has been a really tough time over the last few years for this group. And what group am I talking about? I'm talking about energy. Energy related. I'm going to give you some names, so make sure to get out, yes, a pencil, 
Well, back to the pencil again. Get out a pen, get out a pencil, get out some kind of writing device. Cause I'm gonna give you some names. Because the last week, and I, I, my eyes are popping out of my head. These have been great names all year long. They've been just stars. And we have a good chunk of these inside of our portfolio. Now, listen, this I'm, I'm sharing with this, this with you because two things. One, it's really fascinating how well they've done in the face of what's going on with the markets. Number two, this shows that I was really concerned about being involved in energy, but what could happen? Now, understand something. Big disclaimer. Obviously, first of all, don't utilize any of this in your investing. There's not a recommendation or a solicitation. There is nothing involved with what I'm going to talk to you about that is anything more than educational purposes only and for illustrated purposes only. It is not a solicitation, blah, blah, blah. It's none of that. Okay, you get all that? Are we clear? Investing involves a lot of risk. Use your best judgment. Here's the point. If I didn't do that and I went against this or I thought that I would utilize my own process, if you will, that did not have grounds in some kind of uh, uh, longer-term thesis that was that was you know tested by us for over a long period of time that we didn't trust, I would never be in Devon Energy or Ecopetrol or Enter Plus or, or Oxenopedia. I would definitely, 100%, not be in Petrobras, Petrobrasaria from Brazil. Now, just to think about what last week, the in the week in the week's period of time, we know it was a good week, right, for markets. Oil came up again on Friday for all sorts of reasons, and talking about how Biden's team now wants to talk about. Uh, I, I don't know how this is going to work, but eliminating or banning all sales of gasoline outside of our borders. That has something to do with it too, probably. The, the two million per day cut. The fact that OPEC Plus waited this long to realize that now's a good time to do it, especially when this is pretty smart of them. When the Biden administration is going to have to re, re buy and refill and 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 get the strategic petroleum reserves back up after a million barrels per day were released over a six month period, they're not idiots. Of course they waited. They were probably sitting there going the whole time, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. This is great. A little snapping of the fingers in the background. Oh, we love this because you know what? Just wait our time here. When we cut, they're going to be buying. Price is going to scoot higher. And you know what? It worked. <laughs> it worked. It's great. Great plan. But you look at these names. I'm going to get go down the list real quick. But we're talking about Devon Energy. DVN, up 18% or so in the last week. Equitrol, 15%. Um, Statal Hydro, EQNR, 6.5%. Enter Plus, up 10%. Diamondback Energy, 16%. The list goes on and on. Matador, up 24%. There was a couple of duds in here. Valvoline, up 2%. Uh, Continental Resource, up 3%. Those are a little bit different. They weren't straight up uh, oil. Uh, they were different. Uh, Calon Petro, up 25%. Conoco Phillips, 14%. Um, and Canadian Natural and... Um, I don't know what I didn't mention here. It's probably Matador, Marathon, Petro. The point is that while we may sell these at any given time, by the way, and we will probably rotate out of these if they don't meet the cut and meet the strict filtering and scoring system that we have um, at the end of the three-month period that they're included in the portfolio, which is a couple of months from now or a month from now. Um, the fact of the matter is we still have to look at this as uh, a really fascinating way 
of looking at keeping your feet to the fire, making sure that you are honest, making sure that you do what you're supposed to do and not saying, well, you know, I see the names in there, but uh, I don't think I want to invest in them. And these returns, by the way, are just five days. They've been really good for the last quarter in spite of what's gone on and relatively to what's gone on and absolutely what's gone on in the markets. And I could probably also give you examples of times it didn't work out like that. But I will share with you that I think that I'm much more comfortable and I have less self-doubt when I know that there is a process that is behind that while it may not do well over certain periods of time, the fact is that over long history, I can hang my hat on the fact that this, for me, works. And I think that's an important consideration when you're building your process, whatever that may be. When you're working on developing your portfolio, listen, we know that diversification this year has been crap, awful. When every sector, aside from energy, uh, basically, has not done well this year, every bond of slow duration uh, is done okay relative to long duration, but yet not good on an absolute basis. When things like energy has done well, but gold has fallen off. Where you see that uh, international has done poorly because the dollar keeps on rising. There's just a whole host of issues that, you know, you have to say, okay, well, do I give it all up? Do I just throw in the hat? Do I just say, forget it, I'm done? Or do you look back and say, you know what, this is an aberration right now. We'll get back on track because we know over decades this is really done a great job according to what we wanted to do, how we want to structure portfolios, how we see things unfolding historically over time in the markets. And right now what we're seeing is just a hiccup and it happens because nothing's perfect, no plan, no process, et cetera. Um, I mentioned, uh, I mentioned uh, that I was on Frank Curzio's show this week. Okay, I have a question that came in from a gentleman named Brian. And uh, Brian uh, wrote me, and I just want to read this uh, as we come to an end of the show. He says, hey, Andrew, I'm a math geek and former teacher and football coach looking to break into finance. Your podcast has been instrumental in picking up the lingo and wrapping my head around big picture problems. And thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome, Brian. He says, given the current state of the economy, why can't we say that it was abnormally stimulated? Some of the money found its way into the market and made corporate balance sheets look good. And as the money leaves as the market via various Fed measures, a quantitative tightening, uh, LOL, and interest rate hikes, and the economy should return to some pre-COVID equilibrium. Is there something fundamentally wrong with the economy to where it needs to crash? I look at this athlete being on steroids, and now he's coming off. He's still probably a pretty good athlete. I agree with you that the Fed needs to relax a bit and let things play out. I think the question comes in here, and, 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 and inside of, in the middle of the guts of this was the whole idea. Does, does the market need to crash? Does the economy need to crash? You know, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. But the Fed seems hell-bent on making that happen. The Fed seems, you know, all but too happy to keep on raising in this experiment that we talked about earlier on that I keep on bringing up in the, maybe maybe to see just how bad could it be because worse comes worse, they figure, ah, what the heck, we could just, listen, if we can stimulate and create an incredible economic and stock market situation during a global shutdown of businesses, higher interest rates, we can reverse, no big deal. I think that's what they're thinking. 
And it kind of makes a little bit of sense if you think about it from their perspective. But yes, the athlete that's on steroids now, what happens? He does crash for a little while, but then he'll come out of it, right? A person that's addicted to drugs needs to kind of flush it out of their system. Or an alcoholic that stops drinking after years of drinking three, you know, fifths a day. Fact is that there is some pain that comes along with the process. We may not like it. Companies will do their best to adjust. That's what's fascinating about the current environment with the employment situation, that companies are not really doing a lot of layoffs yet, meaning they're not feeling the pinch yet. That's what's fascinating about this. So therefore, do we have a better thought as to earnings coming out, even with FedEx and CarMax and AMD and Nike and Starbucks and Walmart and Target, these companies that have been saying, hey, 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 something's not right. Do we have that concern right now going into earnings season, which will start with the banks on the 14th, where JP Morgan will head it, you know, hit it off and, and, and bring us that information? Is there something we're not seeing in a totally different environment that companies are not only paying more, willing to keep people on for some reason during economic downturns that are problematic to their bottom line. I don't know, but doesn't seem likely to me. Doesn't seem likely at all that companies will actually go and keep on losing money for the sake of keeping people on, except for the fact that maybe they're finding it really difficult to keep people. But as people are laid off, more people will wake up and say, well, maybe uh, this whole, uh, you know, uh, easy employment situation is not going to be the same. So... Things are changing very rapidly. It's a conundrum, Brian. It's a conundrum. And that which is going to be fascinating to read about in the uh, history books in 20 years from now. So thank you for your question. I really appreciate it. Again, uh, we're going to do that giveaway. We're going to give away 10 books. So send me your name, your address. In an in a, um, in a, in a Ask Andrew over on the Discipline Investor, just click that button. And we will then uh, pick 10 random randos from it. And we will send you a copy of The Discipline Investor, Essential Strategies for Success. And finally, in closing, uh, once more, F you to FUD. It's not about that. We can solve that problem. It's about self-doubt. Not about this other thing they try to bring to you. It's not about this airiness and just talking it. It's walking the walk. That's what we're going to do. We're going to create a process. We're going to make sure it's rounded right. We're going to make sure that it's grounded. We're going to make sure that it is, it is implementable, if that's the right word, if we can implement, implementable. I don't know. Uh, and it is something that you actually are uh, can lean on in good times and bad times. Hey, listen, thanks so much for joining me. This is Andrew Horowitz. We're signing off this week. I'll see you again next week with another exciting discussion on the Discipline Investor Podcast. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and 
conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training.